Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My guest today is Ed Miliband, Labour MP for Doncaster North, leader of the Labour Party between 2010 and 2015, and currently Shadow Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Since 2017, he's co-hosted the hit podcast Reasons to be Cheerful with Jeff Lloyd, which has inspired his new book, Go Big, How to Fix Our World. Hi, Ed. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you very much for having me. And thank you for being so nice about about my podcast. (laughs) Well, you say that this is not the book that you would have written in 2015. So do you credit the doing the podcast with a sort of a sort of major change in your in your thinking? Podcasts have transformative effects. We know we know that from yours. Uh, no, look, I think the truth is that um, it's not the book I would have written in 2015 for a whole range of reasons. I think I think it's bolder, I hope, than I was in 2015 because my reflection on 2015 is I was bold in my analysis of the problems of the country around inequality and and the and the issues we faced, but I wasn't bold enough in the solutions. The podcast opened and it was Jeff Lloyd who came to me in 2017 and said look there are great ideas around the world let's 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 have a podcast that looks at them and in a in a kind of comprehensible interesting way and and so what the book tries to do is to take some of those ideas and go into them in more depth think about how we can how we might do them here and and so yes i think the podcast is is a, is a really important part of my journey and I mean, you've had a, a new lease of life um, as a, as a result of nice that, of I you think. to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you're a, a popular a broadcasting legend these days. Oh well, that's I think uh, an exaggeration. <laughs> um, and and I'm thinking of some of your contemporaries like Andy Burnham and Ed Balls, in their very different ways, have become these very sort of you know popular um, sort of characters in, in sort of in sort of national life. Do you think there is something? fundamentally wrong with frontline politics maybe particularly opposition politics if it squeezes the personality and like you said boldness out of people who who when they're not in that position are sort of interesting and likable and and, and sort of and, and sort of full of ideas this is this is the shorthand for this question is where was this personality in 2015 um uh, but it's not just I mean, you that's what i'm saying oh i see i see i think there is an interesting definitely an interesting point here I partly take my own responsibility for it. I was too constrained because I felt there was a certain there was a certain model of what a leader was like. I was brought brought up in the sort of message discipline years of New Labour. I think you are, as the leader of the Labour Party, you have in the back of your mind, or indeed in the front of your mind, a constant sense of, if I say this, is it going to blow up as a massive story? If I put a foot wrong, people will jump on it. So there's kind of reasons for caution. I was pro- I was probably too cautious. Um, I was too cautious. Uh, and and yeah, I think I think there's a, look. I think there's definitely a truth to it. I think there's definitely a truth to the constraints. But other people have maybe dealt with the constraints better than I did. And you know, in a sense, I take responsibility for not having not having found enough of a way through them. Well, it's unusual, I think, to have a former leader in, in sort of in the shadow cabinet, sort of close at hand for the for the current leader. Um, does Keir Starmer ever ask you how you handled certain situations? D- definitely. And, 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 you know, in the discussions we've had over the last year or so, um, you know, hopefully what I can provide is a sense, well, a sense of the mistakes I made, uh, partly, um, and sort of, and kind of reflections on, you know, the lessons, the lessons I learn. And, 
uh, yeah, I suppose most of all, I kind of, I think until you've done the job, it's very hard to recognize and realize the sort of the, well, the enormous pressures that you face and the, and, and sort of everything flying at you and the, and the sort of constant and the constant commentary. But, and I suppose the, the lesson that I've kind of learned reflecting on it is lots of things that seem big in the context of the day-to-day Westminster issues aren't actually that big. And you've got to try as best you can to stick to your own game, stick to your own vision. And in the end, I think it is, I think it's big forces, not bacon sandwiches, if I can put it that way, that decide elections. And it's big arguments that decide elections, not the day-to-day flotsam and jetsam, but there is a lot of flotsam and jetsam. Well, I mean, I suppose by the appeal, you know, writing this book is you just get to step out of, you know, all this kind of um, the sort of day to day, the media world and the Westminster world and and kind of take a long view of some of these these bigger issues. Did you have a, a reader in mind, a kind of like, who's this book for in your mind? I think it's less for the Westminster village and more for somebody who's interested in politics uh, interested in making the world better, if that doesn't sound too sort of simplistic, um, and and is thinking, well, I see lots of problems, climate change, inequality, you know, a whole range of issues. Are there any solutions out there? Are there better ways of doing things? And And I'm trying to say to people, yes, you know, don't despair. <laughs> don't think there aren't solutions out there to our problems. There are solutions, whether it's, how we have affordable housing, how we can tackle climate change, uh, whether you know families, uh, mums, dads, all of us can have more time off from work, uh, whether workers can have a voice in their companies, whether we can devolve power from Westminster. There are better ways of doing things. And if we lift our eyes, if we lift our eyes from the minutiae of Westminster, there are good big mm. solutions out there. Because there are lots of grassroots stories in the book, um, really sort of successful local experiments. But then you also talk about reforms such as breaking up big tech monopolies, drastically reducing carbon emissions, which require huge international cooperation. What what is a sort of I don't know a sensible response for individ for an individual to a problem that can that can seem like they have no power over whatsoever. Well, I, this is what the the last part of the book tries to address, and and I suppose I was conscious that I can present big ideas, which I try and do in the first three quarters of the book, but I also wanted to say to people, look, it, it goes to my view about politics, really, which is, of course, politicians have incredibly consequential effects on what happens, but it is movements of people that create the circumstances and are the crucial forces that shape the world we live in. And that has always been true. And whether it's LGBT rights or the NHS or trade union rights, they happened because movements of people made them happen, not simply because politicians made them happen. And so I'm trying to say to people in the in the last part of the book, if you look at the fight for the $15 minimum wage in the US, if you look at what Preston Council is doing to pay the living wage to not just its employees, but businesses it contracts with. If you look at the divestment movement, if you look at community organising, the sort of most elemental, an elemental idea of how grassroots activism can be effective, there are always things you can do to make a difference. Whatever you think of the central government that we have, you know, the, the, 
the system is still porous enough that there is a difference you can make. So, so it's it's trying to be hopeful, or not, not trying to be hopeful. I am hopeful, not just in the sense that there are big ideas out there, but that people can affect change. Because Preston is is a very inspiring example. I think I think someone's even written a sort of a book all about about that town. Why do you think it's not become a kind of model, and that, and that there aren't lots of other places doing the same thing, or maybe or maybe there are? And I'm just less aware of them. You know, more and more people are doing it. We were talking to the mayor of Newham on my podcast the other day, and she she was actually talking about why we needed to think beyond GDP, why in a borough like hers, it didn't take account of racial injustice, of poverty, and of a whole range of things. But she was talking about pursuing this Preston agenda, what's called the community wealth building agenda. And just for your listeners, that's about saying government, local government, uh, local institutions, the police, the NHS, others have huge buying power. And if they, they could either use that buying power for the least cost, worst workers' rights, kind of race to the bottom, you know, just, just let's, you know, contract for the least we can get away with, or they can think, how do we shape the institutions around us and the area around us in a way that pays a living wage, encourages cooperative businesses, you know, does all kinds of things. And what's so interesting about this, Dorian, is that I think that the Preston sort of example, there is a quiet revolution going on. Lots of other councils are learning from it, are thinking, well, how do we do this? The Scottish government, the Welsh government are thinking about it too. You know, so so I think... I think, and maybe it's partly the sort of world we live in that that you know messages and ideas can be transmitted very easily. Um, you know, I think I think the power of example is really mm. is really significant, um, and and I think there is a lot going on now. Of course, you know there'll be inertia, there'll be blockages to this, but I think I think that is actually uh, the the Preston. And the sort of spread of the Preston idea is a real, and and there is this community wealth building movement. There are a network of people, not just from Britain, but from around the world that meet, that gather, that think about these issues. Um, And I think what what we've seen this sort of past decade um, in British politics is this sort of Labour Party having many good policies, but sometimes struggling to get this sort of successful narrative and a Tory party with some very successful narratives, but not a, a lot of policies in general. Um, and so I'm not asking you to write the next Labour manifesto um, sure. off the hoof. But I mean, what as you're sort of putting together like these these sort of stories, not just from around the country, but from around the world, and these really interesting examples, um, did it give you an idea of the sort of narrative that you, what's the story you want to tell that kind of unites these ideas? Because policies that we've discovered that sort of policies alone sometimes don't seize the imagination. They have to be part of a, a story. Yes. I mean, Interestingly, you know, I began this book before COVID and in the wake of the whole argument about Brexit, obviously the financial crisis of the of the late 2000s. Um, and, and, you know, then COVID struck. I think, I think there is a real set of lessons from what we've been through in the last 15 months. You see, I think the spirit that has animated people... I think it's brought out the best in the British people. I think it has shown a sense of solidarity, of looking after each other. Most people have obeyed the rules. You know, businesses have stepped up and others. The, the, the problem we've got is that the institutions, the way our country is run, is so at odds with the spirit of who we are. 
um, who we have been in this crisis. So whether it's the pay of key workers or the investment in our public services or the powerless that lots of workers face at work. And, and so I think it's matching. I think the argument that is to be made is to match the spirit of who we are with the way our country um, is, is run. And, and then that takes me on to policy. And, you know, I know what you mean about policy and the narrative. I think, though, people do respond to big ideas and big change. You know, Bre- you know, the, I don't need to tell listeners of this podcast that, you know, Brexit was very controversial. <laughs> uh, you know, Brexit was a big idea. Now, we can think it wasn't the right idea. And, and obviously now it's happened and so on. But I think, and I think you saw this a bit in 2017 uh, and the, and the you know, when Jeremy Corbyn did a lot better at that election than had been expected. People want big change. I, I represent a constituency that voted, you know, significantly for Brexit, Doncaster North. People were saying to me, look, we want something new. We want something different. And I, I actually think there is a real appetite for this. Now, now in one sense, post-pandemic, people just want to get back to normal People want to see their loved ones. People want to be able to operate in their normal lives. But there's something else, which is that there is this desire. I think that the, the, the crises we've been through and what they've illustrated, there is this desire for something bigger and better and different. And I think that's, I, th- I think you can speak, we can speak to that through a narrative about what we've learned from this crisis. But I think there's also something deeper about saying to people, look, there is something better. And, and that's what we can offer. And which of these ideas do you feel are, because there's a range here, and I suppose some are just these enormous challenges um, and, and others seem more attainable. Which of these do you feel like, and, and maybe even made more likely by the pandemic, that are within reach? Uh, you know, it's like trying to choose between my children. It's sort of like, I love all of these ideas. <laughs> no, I, 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 th- I think I talk in the book about when politics really has an impact is not just the art of the possible, which is the cliche about politics, but when it makes the impossible possible. In other words, things that seem impossible to achieve, but actually happen, you know, and then the NHS was once that the minimum wage was once that, as I said earlier, LGBT rights were once that. Um, But, but that isn't to sort of diminish the importance of the, of the, of the, of the possible. So, so just to give you some examples we know we're in the decisive decade on the climate emergency. There is a vision, the Green New Deal, of investing at scale to create the jobs of the future, which we can do, to create warmer, better homes for people, improve our public transport, create better lives for people, and tackle the climate emergency at the same time. That is almost a no-brainer. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's obviously what we should be doing. The government's good at the rhetoric, but hopeless at the delivery. If you take this issue, which I've been talking about a lot in the last few weeks, which is parental leave and paternity leave, the examples from other countries is the idea that two weeks leave for fathers um, is just a hopeless, uh, when their babies are born, it's just a hopeless system mm. based on the idea that men go out to work, women stay at home, you know, fathers have a quick pit stop uh, you know, when, when their children are born. If we really went for a system of parental leave like they have in Iceland or Norway or other countries where there's three months or more for, set aside for fathers, it could really have an impact not just on the on gender equality but on the way people lead their lives. Public housing, again, I think it's, you know, 
governments of both parties have failed to grasp the nettle on building social housing at scale. We haven't done it for 40 years in this country. We've tried every other solution to tackling the housing crisis apart from this one. So, so there are lots of ideas that I think are are absolutely sort of possible and kind of graspable. I think people have a sense that that change that change should happen. Now, I know from being leader how difficult this is, how difficult it is to enact this change. But I think I think there's lots that is possible if we if we have the political will. I think what a lot of people have, have, have sort of noticed over the last few years is that some of the ideas that you had uh, as leader and that were savaged by the press were mysteriously then praised uh, when the Tories adopted versions of them. Um, and what I noticed in this book is it's not it's not necessarily framed in terms of socialism, in terms of labour. Like some of these ideas are presented in what seems to me a sort of more obviously progressive, but perhaps a more non-partisan way. So when you were writing, were you writing with the hope, I suppose, of reaching people who might not align with you politically? Yes. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I can't quite say this was aimed at Boris Johnson, but, you know, it, it, it was definitely, I, I've been struck doing the podcast that lots we, we get lots of people emailing in and they will sometimes say, look, I'm I'm not a Labour person, but I really like some of the ideas you cover on this podcast. And and I think if I'm honest, Dorian, I think part of this goes to people's fatigue at party political Yaboo, you know, which is just incredibly tiresome. I mean it's tiresome for people doing it too. You know, it's not it's not it's not a, a secret where I'm coming from in the political spectrum, but but I think I think, first of all, people like the idea of something which has shorn a bit of party political sort of stuff. And then, and then, and then secondly, I think there's a, an interesting reflection here, which is if you think about Cameron, Cameron's argument, David Cameron's argument against me was, he once said, I'm living in a Marxist universe when I proposed an energy price freeze, which is now government policy. But, but, but leave that to one side. He was sort of saying, look, basically things are fine and pretty going well in Britain. And that was his argument both at the 2015 election and in the his and George Osborne in the in the referendum. Mm. I think the the Tory, the, the right of politics has changed its argument. They want to now say, and it's true here and it's true in America, they want to say, well, we recognize that there are inequalities. They don't deny my fundamental argument I was making when I was leader, but they say we can tackle it. And I think I think that sort of then reflects something among the people that I'm writing for, which is on right and left, I think there is a search on for, the, for if you like, the new settlement. There was a 1979 to, what, 2008, if that 2008 financial crisis settlement. And I think really we're in this interregnum where it's like, well, what's the new settlement? What does the new settlement look like? The role of government, the role of the private sector? Risk, you know, I think this is massive idea of risk and what the way risk is loaded onto the individual. Business and government have both have both kind of, if you like, abdicated risk onto the individual. So I think we're I think the search for a new settlement isn't confined to the left. And I think maybe that's in a way I'm speaking partly in the book, speaking to people that you know across the spectrum. Yeah, because we seem to be um uh you know, at, at the risk of sounding like Adam Curtis, you know, we seem to be in this period where, where this sort of Gramscian period where neoliberalism is sort of, it's not over, but it's sort Definitely. of run out of steam, but we don't really know 
what to replace it with. There isn't this one, there isn't this sort of up and coming sort of clear movement that's going to take its place. I mean, an opportunity to talk about Gramsci, you know, it's like, it's, it's, <laughs> this, it's, this, it's this oft quoted thing about morbid, the morbid symptoms yeah. in the interregnum, you have the morbid symptoms. Um, you know, I think we are definitely in that moment and we are definitely in that moment. And look, there's, you know, there's interesting questions, challenging questions about why the left post the financial crisis, which looked like it might be a progressive moment, didn't generally sort of become a progressive moment. But then you see what's really interesting is if you look at Biden, now, sure, Biden is currently facing quite a lot of challenges, but, you know, Joe Biden has always been at the sort of centre in the middle of the Democratic Party. I think he is groping for a new settlement. If you look at some of the language that comes out of not just him, but the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen about the cascading crises of inequality, of climate, of racial justice hmm. that America is facing, the, you know, this is not the language of 10, 15 years ago. It's a different language. And I think so, so I think that's I think you're absolutely bang on about this. And and in a way, that's what I'm trying to do a bit in the book, which is to contribute to this question of what the new settlement should look like. I, I identify three things that I think are important. One, how you renew and rebuild the social contract to give everyone a stake and have a more equal country. Secondly, how we put markets in their place properly, because if we allow markets to ride roughshod over the values of society, we massively undermine the things that we value and that are important. And thirdly, how we extend and deepen democracy, because our democracy is in trouble. And that's not just about devolution votes at 16. It's about more, more participatory forms of democracy. And that's, if you like, the central spine of the book. And and that's my, and this is really hard, but that's my attempt to try and fashion mm. the kind of contours of a new settlement. And Brexit, I mean, sort of ate up politics for three years or so. Then came the pandemic. Um, now, sort of political discourse seems to be full of what seems to me these sort of relatively trivial uh, culture war issues. Um, and a lot of these kind of long, big long-term problems, care for the elderly with an aging population and so on, um, don't seem to be being addressed. Do you worry, I mean, did you worry while writing this book that, that they're not just in the case of the climate emergency, that we're actually running out of time to fix these big problems? I mean, I think it's definitely true in relation to the climate emergency. I mean, on social care, you know, governments of both parties have failed to address this issue for decades. Um, the difference with the climate emergency, I'm not saying care isn't important, it is, but the difference with the climate emergency is that the decisions we make this decade will have massive consequences for generations to come, because this is the this is the decisive decade. This is when it will be determined whether the world can stay on track for a keeping global warming to one and a half degrees or, or not. And so if I worry about anything more more than anything else, yeah. it's whether we're going to step up as a country and as a world um, on, on climate. And I, look, I think there's also something here about sort of the agency of politics, if I can put it that way. I think Brexit is, was different the, in that respect. But I think maybe a bit on the left, we lost our sense of agency that... You know, that, that we almost got to the stage where some problems just seem too big to tackle. Like, well, we're going to be, un we are unequal. We're going to carry on being unequal. And there's not really very much we can do about it. Mm. You know, that it's just a sort of fact of life. Globalization can't really be sort of controlled. It's, it's, it's like the weather, you know, you can't really control it. It's just happening. And, and that is a sort of fatalism and a lack of agency. And, and I sort of tend to the, a different view, which is, look, politics made our institutions, politics in its broadest sense, 
and politics can remake our institutions. So partly it's sort of an appeal to politics to sort of raise its sights. Well, I think this is what happened after 1945, actually, um, to raise its sights and say, look, big change is possible. We've just seen in the US, you know, that elections really matter, you know, and saying the climate issue, the difference between Trump and, and Biden is night and day. Now, there's less sort of contrast here because the, the, the current government is not, you know, they're not climate change deniers. But Boris Johnson doesn't seem that interested uh, in the medium or long term uh, in many other senses. So ultimately, I felt reading this is, is the only way that most of this stuff in your book is going to happen is with a Labour government that that. that that much though you want to empower individual readers, that that really there's a there's an electoral uh, hurdle here. I mean, of course there of course there is an electoral hurdle, definitely. But I think it um, I think it may have been Rebecca Solnit who said change starts on the left and it ends up in the centre. <laughs> Sometimes people say to me, "Is it frustrating for you that the Tories have adopted some of your policies? Okay, on a small scale and etc., and they're not doing it properly." It's not really frustrating, no, because I think it's a sign of, uh, you know, political success when your opponents, you, you know, we want, you want your ideas to become mainstream mm. and accepted. At one point, that was the case with the 0.7% uh, GDP um, uh, for overseas aid. And, and obviously the government has now backed away from it. But, you know, is, if the question is, do we desperately need, a, in my view, a Labour government? The answer is yes, because... Because I think to to get these changes done at scale, you you, you know, I don't feel it's happening with this government. De- definitely not. Because I mean, I, I did think that that perhaps I could see you sort of you know heading heading a think tank or an NGO or there are other ways, particularly with with you know your sort of um, sort of intellectual tradition you come from, the kind of work you've done. Why do you still think that being an, an MP is the best thing that you could be doing? That's a really good question. Look, I, I have great respect for people who do those other things that you've been talking about there, and I don't mean that in a sort of lip service way. I mean that, and I think that does have a real impact. I suppose, you know, I was an advisor, and I thought a lot about being an MP, and I wasn't really sure I uh, wanted to, wanted it. I I now do feel, though, that, you know, if I was the uh, business and energy secretary in a Labour government in two or three years' time... I could be really having a material effect on this climate question, mm. you know, um, and and you know, so 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 too running an NGO, but the chance to actually be in government at this crucial moment is one I would really value, and I would really think I could make a difference. And you know, why did I stick around after 2015? I stuck around fundamentally because I felt you don't need to be the leader to have an impact. That ideas matter, and I wanted to, and I didn't quite know how I was going to keep pushing ideas, and, I, and the way that I, Jeff helped me discover that, that the podcast could be the way to do it. But I also want to be there in government, making a difference, because I think, you know, opposition sucks. Um, <laughs> frankly, uh, I can tell you that exclusively. But at being in government, you can make a difference, and and that's what I want to be doing. So finally, you mentioned in your book your encyclopedic childhood love of Dallas. Um, Go on. Which you can ask me a so, quiz question. Yes. Do you who do you remember who shot Jr. I think it was Kristen, wasn't it? It was. Um, I had to look that up. Uh, I remember. 
I remember watching on the news when I mean, this sounds makes me sound so old. I remember watching on the news when the VHS. I think they filmed the VHS of the. I don't believe this is even true uh, of the kind of key episode arriving at Heathrow Airport. Maybe I've ma- ma- made this up, but I remember it was such a big deal. I mean, it was like a kind of water. I'm not sure we had water coolers then, but you know, it was definitely a sort of water cooler moment. I mean, it was like you know, it was going to be a massive deal. Who shot JR? It was. It was shrouded in mystery and. And and all of that, I, I, yeah. I like the way that your fascination with this kind of like capitalist fantasy did not go down well with your uh, with your dad. I used to sneak into I used to sneak into our, our, our the room where our telly was, our living room, and 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 watch it. And I think I sort of think my dad sort of talk, my dad was I would say bemused by my fascination with the uh, with the oil barons. Um, even to this day, I'm not. I can't claim it was a sort of an early advocacy of renewable energy either. Really, I mean, I would love to obviously be able to say it was because I felt they should have more wind turbines. Um, uh, although they, as I say in the book, they, you know, actually Texas is quite a leader in wind energy. Um, but that's another story. But um, I, maybe I loved, loved the drama. I was. I think I was a sucker for the drama. Actually, I was a sucker for the drama and the um, and, and all of that. <laughs> cool. Well, you you proved your you proved your Dallas credentials. Um, View. Thank you so much for joining me, Ed Miliband. No, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Go Big is out now. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time on The Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison and assistant producers were Jacob Larchbold and Yelena Sofronevich. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieburn, and the Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.